just so you all know, I had a pretty impressive, at least of myself, slideshow and ready to go and five o'clock tonight, trashed it all. Just couldn't do it. And uh, so I'm going to be winging it. Just trusting the Lord, trusting Him to make it work. And I certainly would appreciate all your prayer and patience. <laughs> and with that, let's go before the Lord. Father God, uh, we just praise you for who you are, Lord, for your amazing grace. Lord, I lift up this time to you. Uh, may it be about you, Lord, and not plans of man or plans of me. Uh, may it be your message provided through your spirit. And we just praise you for it all. In our Lord and Savior Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Judges, chapter 3. All my slides, no slides, so you have to work hard. <laughs> and verse, we'll be starting in verse 12. My thing turns on. Here we go. Quick recap from last week, very quick. Othniel was raised up by the Lord, filled with the Spirit, defeated the king, which I don't remember his name, and the people had rest for 40 years. Question is, what happens? Well, actually, what happens is they had a they had a strong leader, a, a strong spiritual leader. And with that, they, were, they had a good shepherd. And when the people lost their shepherd, when he died, they turned back to sin. They turned away from God. They turned to start following the practices and the deities, the lowercase gods of their people, the other people around them. So let's start with, uh, again, chapter 3, verse 12. And the children of Israel again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. A few things you should know. <clears throat> Moab and, Am and Ammon are descendants from Lot, Abraham's nephew. And I don't know how many recall, but after Lot was taken out of Sodom, Sodom before it being destroyed, he went with his two daughters to a cave. Well, his daughters thought it was a good idea to get the father drunk, and each one went slept with him. And from them, that's the two sons, the two sons, and that's the descent. That's who these kingdoms are descendants from. Uh, in the same regard, Lot, while he was still alive, chose to live in Sodom. 
because of the green fields and because of all the, it just was a financially good move for him. So he could live in comfort. Uh, Amalek is a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother, Jacob's older twin brother, who should have had <clears throat> the birthright, should have had the blessing from his father. Well, Esau, with the character of he, that he had, chose to sell his birthright for a pot of stew. And then later, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceived, I mean, not Jacob, um, yeah, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceived Isaac to obtain the, the blessing. And that's how Jacob ended up in the bloodline versus his older brother, who should have been in the bloodline. And again, Amalek's a descendant of those, as it being an Edomite, and the Edomites and the... Amaleks, I mean the Amalekites, live together in Edom. So these three nations, the if you can picture, I don't have to, definitely how to do this. Jordan River comes from the north to the south. Promised Land is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, heading toward the Mediterranean Sea. To the right side, you had. Ammon, Moab, and then Edom. So they basically had, and in, in between that was the Jordan River starts off, goes to the Sea of Galilee, comes down to the south into the Dead Sea. Well, they, kind of, they were kind of wrapped around the western bank of the Dead Sea and up along the Jordan. So they just kind of swept in and took over the land. Now, Eglon, king of Moab, as already said, he is the king. He is now currently living in the city of Palms. That's where, maybe not living, but that's where he's ruling from in the, uh, the promised land people. You know, the, and what that was the, I can't remember, I think it was Ephraim, Benjamin, I believe there's another one right in that same area. Now, of course, the city of Palms. Here goes my brain. Everybody knows this. The city that they marched around and the bull fell down? Jericho. <laughs> the city of Palms is, this, is in the same place as Jericho. I mean, they're basically the same. So let's just keep going, see what happens from here. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the, ben, the Benjamin, Benjamite, a left-handed man by, by a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, a couple of interesting things here. One is the fact that it states here that by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. 
I don't think it's unfair to assume that this isn't his first time. I mean, they've been, doing, they've been under captivity for 18 years, and he's probably been the guy all along that's been sent to do that job. Another thing here, too. Oh, well, obvious. He's a Benjamite, a Benjaminite, a Benjamite, and a left-handed man. This is the irony, perhaps, which I don't think it is, but perhaps that Benjamin, Benjamin is, is the definition of Benjamin is my right hand, or son of my right hand, and here he's a left-handed guy. Also, being left-handed in that culture was a sign of weakness, some something wrong with them, and even thinking back to the time that I was growing up in school. Whenever I would see someone writing with their left hand, it was like, there's something wrong with that. That's weird. It just doesn't look right. He holds the paper wrong. I mean, everything is funky. And, uh, and that's how we kind of, we pick up traits like that from different people, and that's what they're known for. But again, being left-handed, being considered maybe a little awkward, also being that, that, that it's a weakness, God can use those weaknesses for a reason. He can take our weaknesses and make them into a strength. So let's continue. Now Ehud made himself made himself a dagger. It was a double edged and a cubit in length. Well, a cubit's about tw- eighteen inches, approximately about that long. and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Only time it's mentioned in the Bible about anyone being a very fat man. I've read a couple of things that they say that he perhaps had a 300-inch waistband. But again, what's different about this guy? He's a very fat man. How does the Bible talk about him? He's a very fat man. And that's how he'll always be known (laughs) as a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Okay, the tribute. This is, even though they made a big procession to bring this tribute up to the, to the king, they're serving a king they hate. This is also the same as Christ, in a time of Christ, when the Jews were under control by the Romans, and they had to pay a tax. It created revolt, revolts, and again, it was whenever an occupying country comes in and takes over another territory, the people of the territory aren't happy. So these people aren't happy. And in the tribute, there could be things such as gold, silver, uh, wheat, wine. 
It's just basically whatever the king exacted from the people. And they had no choice, otherwise they would face the consequences. Now, of course, when he, uh, when he finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So they, when they bring in the tribute, it seems as if the route took them through Gilgal to the city of Palms, or Jericho. There's a very important fact about the city of Gilgal. If you recall, when Joshua led the people finished leading the people and and was ready to come into the promised land it was it was the spring and it was flood season so the river was flooding and this is when the priest went in with the ark and it parted and they went across on dry land well joshua gathered up 12 stones one for each of the tribes of uh, of israel And when they got to the other side, they camped, and where they were camping was Gilgal. So here in Gilgal, you have this monument that was put there by Joshua. And the monument, the the whole purpose of it was to remind the people of what God did for them to get them there. Now in this same Gilgal is where the occupying force, the Moabs, have all of their statuary for their idols. And, this, and, and these aren't, the gods they're worshiping aren't pleasant gods. I don't recall all the names, but I do recall what they did. I mean, I think it was Chemosh, Baal, and there's a bunch of other ashes in there. But anyhow, the, the common practice with all of those is temple prostitution and human sacrifice. So every time he had a pass through there, he's, he's got to, over the, whether it was years, whether it was a long decade, I don't know. But each time he had a pass twice through that territory, he's seen the stones of remembrance. He's seen the, the abominations of these other gods' statuary. And then he has to go to the king and pay homage to him and give them a tribute out of their own pockets. So something's got to be stirring inside him. God's stirring him. God's moving him. Oh, and I do want to back up a little bit. It's, when, when you think of Israel, what first comes to mind? Is it it's a landmass, right? You th- you're thinking about a place on the map. Well, how many here were born before 1948? That's what I thought. How many people in the world were born who are still living that were born before, ni- before 1948? There are some. There's there's a lot, but relative to the was it six eight billion people on the planet, it's not that many. It was that short a time period ago that Israel, the land, didn't exist. But when you're going through the Bible, 
Israel really isn't talking so much about the land. That's a part of it. But it's talking about the people because it's the descendants of Jacob. Remember, God changed his name to Israel. It's synonymous. God's, God cares about the land because he promised it. And it's still it's there again. I mean, it's, it's, it's been under his control. But he's really concerned about the people. And I'd like to just back up a little bit further to that point. In Genesis, I don't remember, maybe 2.12 or 2.2, something like that. God promised to Abram, when he was ready to move him out of the land of Ur, that I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to bless the people. The nations. That's a very loose paraphrase. But how have, they been, how have we been blessed through that? It's through the bloodline. Where did our Lord and, what bloodline is our Lord and Savior from? It's Christ. It's through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through da 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 da, da. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. And what's really interesting, if you look at the, in the book of Mark and the book of Luke, they take it from two different directions. One, the bloodline from Abraham. Actually, one takes it from Adam all the way to, now I'm confused, whether it was Mary, whether it was Mary or, or uh, Joseph, I'm not too sure. And the only thing is from Abraham to there. But both, both bloodlines come to, a, to, our, to our Savior through Abraham. Another thing about Israel, sorry, rambling, it's just something that's feeling led. Uh, we can picture Israel on the map. What do we picture around Israel? Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, a little further than that, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Qatar. Even though some of those countries have relaxed, at least some of, those, some of the leaders of those countries have relaxed the attempts to wipe Israel off the face of the map, what do the people believe? What are they being led to believe? Are they in love with Israel, or are they surrounded by enemies? Going back to the map that we were, that I was kind of air-drawing, they were surrounded by enemies then, too. And I also don't believe that's an accident. God wants them to remember him, because they can't exist without God. They are so outnumbered and overpowered. It's only God and God makes sure we understand it's only God that keeps them where they're at because he chose them. All right. Let's go back to where we were. So, so here, Ehud turns back, goes through the, past the stone images at Gilgal, and speaks to the king. Oh, king, I have a message. So the king, again, I'm taking this leap of what makes sense, already knows him. I mean, he knows of him. He's comfortable with him. He says, so he tells his people, so he, says the, so he says to them, he said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud, Ehud came to him 
Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then he had said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Now I'm sure the Moabites had their own version of a secret service. They had guards. So either, and again, this is a little bit of conjecture, either because Moab knew Ehud and had some level of trust, the level of intense searching was diminished. Or, what I'd like to believe is God just made him oblivious. And the fact that he was left-handed and the dagger was on the right thigh instead of this thigh, he may have just walked past because they did a quick brush down and, nope, he's good. So then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, the handle, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Hmm. A lot of symbology here. The sharp two-edged dagger is really the two-edged... It's, 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 it's a symbol, symbol of the two-edged sword. And in the Bible, Christ, for example, if you read in the book of Revelation... When John was in Patmos, he describes Christ in his glorious form. I had a little stuff down, so it's, I mean, I actually give you a quote and everything else. But I'm paraphrasing horribly, and he describes his white hair, uh, the long robe, girded with a belt, which I don't remember exactly what it was for, but the shoes. But at the very toward the very end, which usually keep the best for last. What was coming out of the mouth of Christ? That's right. And what comes out of your mouth when you speak? It's the word. I mean, this is the two-edged sword is the word of God. It's, that's the symbol of it. It's, it's, a, it's what he's basically pointing toward. It's the, the two-edged sword and being the, the word of God. The, the filth that came out of Moab I mean, Eglon, when the filth came out of Eglon, what's that a symbol of? So when you, when you push, when, when you insert the word of God into something, what can't remain? Right, sin, evil. Now, in the case of Eglon, his heart, he hated God. He hated the Israelis. That's why they, he invaded there and conquered and ruled over them. So he's already turned his back on God. And for the fact that he is a descendant of Lot, he has got to know about what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He's already seen what took place. I mean, he also has to know about what took place at Jericho. He knows what's taken. It was actually the Moab were the people who, while the procession, all this few million people from from coming out of Egypt, marching around in the desert for a while, were heading up the King's Highway. Well, they wanted to pass through on the King's Highway, even offer to pay the Moabites. Well, they called up Balaam, a prophet of God, and said, hey, we'll pay you to curse them. Well, it was a donkey, his, his talking donkey, that saved his tail several times. And finally, when God opened his eyes, here there's an angel ready to take his head off with a sword. So Balaam saw the light and refused to prophesy, refused to curse them and actually bless them. So this is, this is all tales that would have been told. So they know who God is. They know who the Israelis are. They, they've seen the power of God working through them, and yet all, they, all this king has ever done is reject them and serve his gods and probably encouraged, if not forced, the same activity from his, the, the, the uh, Israelis. So when this word of God entered his life, which he had already rejected. What happens when you reject Christ? When you reject the Word? It's sin. You're dead. Right. You die. Whether you die spiritually and then ultimately die eternally and go to the, uh, spend time with Satan, or you go to heaven if you accept him. So Moab got his. His main focus throughout his life was earthly pleasures and turning his back on God. Well, the word of God, the spear, I mean, the, the sword, killed Moab and he was done. And we all know, at least from what we know, we, we can give a pretty good idea where he went. Start at 23. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, He's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited there. They, they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was the master fallen dead on the floor. When a very fat man is attending to his needs, they're probably in no hurry to go see what's up, because he's going potty. Yeah, it's attending to his needs. But at some point, I guess they looked over to Sundial and said, hey, it's been a little kind of long, now it's time to go check on this, see what's up. And there he found, they found him dead. Also bought time for Ehud, Ehud to escape. 
which also brings me, I'm backing up again because I don't have anything linear. <laughs> All my notes are gone. Um, when Ehud returned with the procession to Gilgal, and that's when he stopped and turned around, he bought them time to escape. So Ehud had a plan. I mean, and whether it, wasn't, whether it was all his plan or God just taking them step by step by step through the procession, it's all orchestrated. But he who had escaped while they delayed. Thank you. Too much. And passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Syra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. Now again, Ephraim, where the Jordan is and the Dead Sea, it's it's a lowland. Where and it's a flat it's it's there's some plain, but it's mostly just a flat it's a flat area down at the Dead Sea. I mean I've been blessed to go to the Dead Sea. I think you're like sixteen hundred feet below sea level. You look around, it's like you're on a different planet. I mean, the sky's different. The sky's like orangey or at times, and it's, it's just, it's strange. Nothing's alive. Everything is dead. The only thing that's alive are where the hotels are, the landscaping they planted. But aside from that, it is, it's a pretty rough area. Now, at this time, it was known for the city of Palms, so they probably cultivated, irrigated from the Jordan and kept stuff alive. So this is a little above the Dead Sea, a little north of the Dead Sea, but that's the general area in that area. Because the, the Jordan runs down at the bottom of the valley, but the valley doesn't go straight up. It kind of goes out and then comes up. So Ephraim is kind of up into the mountains. Is that a way of keeping track of where I left off? That helps. Thank you. I just got to find 27 with my eyes. Uh, and it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. So he blew the shofar, going through the mountains. Obviously, he's been recognized as a leader. And if not, now he is. Um, did he plan this throughout that point, or did God just pick, move his people? I really believe God moved his people because they see God moving through him. And it's easy to follow a godly, strong leader. Another important point here is he didn't blow the shofar and say, you guys go get him. He led. He was the point man. They're following him. A lot different than how it works today. Around the world. But then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan. Very intelligent military move. Because the only escape route for Moab was going back across the Jordan. So he cut him off. Not, it's a military tactic used today. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab. 
all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. It seems that when we're at rest is when we get in trouble. When we have peace, when we have comfort. That's the time when we kind of not call on God anymore. That's the time where we say, I've got this, Lord. I'm not going to bother you right now. That's the time when you're reading of the word doesn't become as your priority any longer. And that's really the time we have to be careful because that's when the enemy attacks. We have to, whether it's, a, whether we are in comfort or whether we are going through a trial, God is still God. He is still in control. But we have to choose him, and we have to continue to choose him. He has to be first in our life. He doesn't want the leftovers. He doesn't need us. We need him. And when we turn our backs, maybe not to serve an idol, but when we turn our backs to serve other things and put other things before him, whether it's our kids, you see a lot of that today. whether it's our jobs, whether it's our creature comforts. All, none of that is bad in itself as long as God comes first. And how do you maintain that relationship with him in the good times and the bad? We're back to the word. You have to be in the word. And it should be a priority each day. It's like, if, if you say you're too busy, then you're doing things that don't need to be done. Because anything that's coming before God, what does that say about your priority? If you're, if, mm -hmm. if you're too busy, then sleep an hour less. Make the time. Make the time to spend time with him in fellowship and prayer. I mean, these are, so oftentimes we try to make it out to be a chore to be in the word, to be in prayer, to come to church, to serve in a, a ministry at church, however God leads. But that's not a chore. To serve is, yes, it's a privilege and it's, it's what Christ told us to be. And he didn't just speak the words. He acted on those words. He was the example. He, he's the one that washed the disciples' feet. He's the one that went to the cross for us. That's the servant model that we have to be. To not just the church, but to relationships, friends. People who aren't friends. People that you really don't like much. And I'm not saying that I've, I'm there. That's not the point. The point is what God says we're supposed it's, it's the, the point is what God, it's where God wants us to be. 
more time you spend with him, the more time you start to look like him. What is the time? I have no idea. Where are we at? We're good? Wow. Thank you, Lord. Well, let's <coughs> go to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Father God, mm-hmm. at 5 o'clock tonight, you said, trash it and trust me. Lord, I thank you that I'm hoping that your message was put forth. I just thank you for this opportunity to serve you. Lord, for whatever we do, may it always be to your glory. We praise this, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.